If you would, open your copy of the scriptures up to Isaiah chapter 53. We'll begin in verse 1. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a chance to look at your word, to consider the nature and the person and the work of Jesus Christ, your son. Lord, help us today to even grasp what we are reading, to understand the importance of what is before us and to walk with you in response. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And what I think is the greatest moment in all of these uh, goofy talent shows, and uh, America has got talent, England's got talent, whatever it is, Britain's got talent, I think it is, I don't know what it's called, or any of those types of shows, you're always looking for the person um, who has been overlooked. You're looking for the, the diamond in the rough to steal a line from Aladdin. You're looking for that person, as you watch these shows, who's going to shock you. And the time that got me, the time that probably got almost everybody, there was a a lady who got on stage on Britain's Got Talent named Susan Boyle. She was a frumpy, 50-something looking individual. Uh, She had gray hair. You know, had the look and was not trendy or anything like that. Wasn't in good shape. Anything of that nature. She comes out and Simon Cowell does his thing. Kind of teases her a bit. And uh, when the music starts, you're kind of holding your breath like, how cringy is this going to be? And then she starts to sing. And about the first note she gets out, everybody's jaw drops. She starts singing a song from Les Mis and just shocks the crowd because you were expecting something completely different. Uh, Expectations are huge. Expectations many times determine realities for us. If we expect the wrong thing, we oftentimes go the wrong way. We brace for the wrong impact. Going to the doctor and they tell you you're going to feel a little pressure. They don't mean a little pressure, do they? You ever had uh, some bones reset? I remember when I was a boy, I broke my thumb really good. They brought in a specialist from St. Louis to reset my thumb. And uh, when they did that, she was like, okay, we're going to uh, move this. Now, remember, I'm a 12-year-old, 11-year-old little boy. And I'm sitting there, and this doctor's looking at me, and it hurts like crazy because it's already it's broke kind of bad. And then she looks at me, she goes, okay, we're going to go on three. She goes, one, and then moved it. <laughs> so I didn't even get to take that breath, didn't get to bite down, nothing. She goes, one, ha! <laughs> ah! It was immediate pain. It wasn't pressure, it was scorching pain. 
expectations oftentimes determine realities for us. Israel had a series of demanding expectations for who Messiah, Deliverer, Savior was going to be. Those expectations, we have to be honest, were understandable. If you read scripture, just to the Old Testament, and you're looking for who the Deliverer, the great Messiah is going to be, a reasonable set of expectations could be largely what they thought. Because they were looking at the good stuff. They were looking at the good news. One of uh, a really good book title anyway, a good book, on marriage is marriage. What did you expect? What did you expect? I remember when we were asked in marriage counseling, Priscilla and I, we sat there in front of the counselor. I said, what are your expectations of marriage? And Priscilla goes, oh, it's going to be lovely. We're going to go from one moment of happiness to the next. And I was sitting there, and the counselor knew that was not my perspective, and said to me, well, you seem to have a different look on your face. What do you think is going to be? I said, I think it's going to be tough. Romantic, right? I think it's going to be hard. I think we're going to get at each other's throats. But I think it'll be worth it in the end. I don't know what I meant by the end at that point. Now, the counselor's response was, I think the truth is somewhere in between. And of course it was. And it has been. And I would say I've been proven wrong over and over again because, gentlemen, I did a very smart thing and I married up. I found a girl better than me and I married her. And she didn't have the wisdom to say no. And if you noticed, who just said amen, it was my parents. I like them apples. Yeah, marry up. Find a good girl. Find a girl that loves the Lord who fears the Lord and she will be praised. Second biggest decision in life, make it well. But your expectations can many times determine how you encounter the trials of your life, how you deal with things. The, the Hebrews had this list of demands, as I said, that were reasonable in many ways. But because they stuck to those expectations and refused to accept the reality that this could be not what I expect, they were hit so hard with the reality of Messiah that they completely dismissed and refused him. This would be the naivety of getting married, thinking it's going to be awesome and wonderful, and then when the reality hits, after the honeymoon, or during the honeymoon maybe, you don't know what, I didn't sign up for this. And so now you struggle tremendously with what you're actually encountering. The Hebrews missed their deliverer when he was right in their midst. He was standing in front of them and they couldn't see him. You and I are no different. The opening question here is, who has believed our message? And the proper theological answer to that is, no one on their own strength. When Peter, when the disciples are asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am? You remember this. 
They answered what the crowd said. Who do the people say that I am? They answered the crowds. And then Jesus presses further. Who do you say that I am? And then Peter makes the great declaration that you are the Son of God. What does Jesus say? Hey, good job, man. You have a brilliant mind, Peter. You're a genius. Oh, blessed are you, Simon or Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the Spirit of God. We don't arrive at accepting this message without the aid and the help of God. And we, in our human nature, are so blind that even with the aid, with the help of revealed Scripture, we wouldn't recognize Jesus either. Even with that aid, it takes not just the Word of God, it also takes the Spirit of God to illuminate, to turn the lights on. Remarkable how needy we truly are when Jesus says, without me you can do nothing. Wow, we learn how right he is. Who has believed our message? Nobody on their own wisdom. Nobody's going to sort this out. Who's going to believe? No one's going to figure it out with God, without God's help. And another way to answer the question would be to say, the only person who's really going to sort this out, on a human level you might say, as we would expect it ourselves, as we would reason it in our own mind, is to say the only one who's going to recognize or believe this message is the one who is humble enough to deny their own wisdom, their own thinking, and their own expectations and take up what God has said. If you're humble enough to actually listen to God and to the whole message of what he says, then you can see this. Those with the humility to accept God's answer to our ultimate dilemma of sin and how we can be sinful people can be made right with a holy God, those are the ones who can believe this message. What he says next in this verse, after he moves on for who has believed our message, he then says this, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In chapter 52, verse 10, just a few verses back, it says this, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God and the baggage that is in the mind of the the normal reader unaided by the Spirit of God when reading that verse is a military king who comes and delivers the people of Israel. If God Almighty, who has been revealed in the previous dozen chapters in such mighty array with such incredible explanations, is to show forth Him, is to manifest Himself, show His arm and His power, then what is it going to look like? Well, I expect something that's undeniable and unstoppable and plows through the stupidity and the military forces of our world. But what do we get? We get a humble Savior. We get the arm of the Lord when it's revealed comes in a way that is just completely unexpected. It says further in illustrating the point of what the arm of the Lord looks like in verse 2. He says, For he, the Messiah, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. What are we talking about here? What is, what is this tender shoot? This is a uh, 
If you have an apple tree, you have, and you know how to prune a tree, you'll recognize there are sucker branches, little offshoots that do nothing to produce more apples. In fact, what they do is they take away from the positive, the, the most beneficial fruit being produced. You have to remove all the little sucker branches that are pulling away from the ultimate production of what you want, which is a good crop of apples. A sucker branch is a little branch that shoots off that is, needs to be removed because it's in the way of what you want. Now think that through. What does Israel think of Jesus? How do they imagine him? Think of how fitting this illustration is. Jesus is in the way of what they want. Jesus is not helping them get to where they want to go. They're expecting the mighty kingdom, the removal of Rome, destruction of Rome, really, and any enemy. And Jesus coming to them and saying, look, you don't need a king yet. You need a savior from your sin. That's in the way. Man, quit this message. What is this? We want to get on the, the road, the highway to the good times, to the golden age. We want to ascend higher than Solomon ever did. See, Jesus is, um, he comes to them as a tender shoot, as a, a branch that needs to be removed. Because he's not allowing us to be our best self. Because he's not allowing us to you know, thrive the way we want, to live our best life now or some garbage like that. No, Jesus is in the way. He's, he's unproductive towards the goal that I have in mind. And further illustrating, he says, like a root out of parched ground. What, of what significance is a root out of parched ground? What's the value of that? I mean, normally what a root out of parched ground does is make you trip. It's about its best value. Or if you're climbing up a hill and you need something to grab a hold of while you're slipping, you grab a root out of parched ground. Something to help you get where you want, and that's about it. It's a stepping stone, maybe, and that's putting the best possible silver lining on it. No, the arm of the Lord, when it is revealed, is going to come in a way that's like, get this out of the way. As far as human eyes view it, this is not the guy we're looking for. This is not living up to expectations. If the arm of the Lord is coming, he'll be an undeniable main branch of the tree. Everything's going to thrive off of that, and we're going to know it immediately. That's not how he comes. Instead, he comes as something like a root out of parched ground. This is just not, this individual is not important. Furthermore, as to intensify the situation, to make it crystal clear to the one listening, he goes further and he says, he had no stately form or majesty. We know what this is like. Whenever a guy is propped up as the next potential presidential candidate, one of the questions they always bring up is what? In regard to appearance. <coughs> Does he look presidential? Right? It was said of George Washington that by several guys 
by several founding fathers that George Washington was taller than everybody else in the room, so therefore he had to lead. And various uh, biographies, or at least explanations and, and such about what he was like and what he looked like, said that he presented this kind of royal aura. Right? Like, apparently very prim and proper. He had the right, he exuded the right kind of energy. He had a nobility about him. I find this interesting because he's about 6'4 from what I've studied on this. But Thomas Jefferson was about 6'2. And Ben Franklin was 6 foot. So he wasn't that huge. He wasn't like towering over everyone. But he, he did have this persona. It said he had perfected the art of like the, the noble silence. Which I have yet to figure out. You know, don't you envy some of that? You know, the John Wayne kind of thing where he can just sit there and everybody's like, oh, I ain't going to mess with him. He had that ability to present that. And one of the ways that George Washington did that was he had a certain distance from the commoner. The soldiers knew him. They stood in awe of him to a degree, but they also tend to, to stand back from him. He had a certain mysterious nature about him that helped perpetuate that idea. You don't want to have too much familiarity because familiar, familiarity breeds contempt. Or, as it says also in Scripture, a prophet is not without respect except in his hometown. Now consider, which of these things line up with Jesus? Jesus was in his hometown among his own people. He had none of this royal aura of majesty is what we're presented with. I think most of us have watched too many Hollywood movies. I watched a little bit of Ben-Hur last night. Actually, be real, I, fast, I watched all of it, but I fast-forwarded. Because <laughs> I remembered a part in Ben-Hur. Anybody remember that movie? That there were various, they wouldn't even show Jesus' face, which they said they were doing out of respect, you know, in their presentation. And I liked that part. But the part that has gotten in most of our heads is exactly what Judah Ben-Hur does in that movie. When Jesus bends down, he's being taken in Ben-Hur. If you don't know the movie, he's being taken away in chains, unlawfully treated and all this stuff. He's on the ground, and Jesus comes over. All you see is his back, and he gives him this water. And Ben-Hur looks up, and he just does one of these. He's just shocked and in awe just by the sheer radiance of Jesus' face. And then a soldier comes over, a centurion comes over to whip Jesus, and he just looks at him, and he... He melts just by the sheer sight of him. That's actually kind of the opposite of what this is presenting. Why? Because when we think of the greatest man ever, we can't imagine that he would be normal. Because I've known some pretty cool people in life. And they have a magnetism about them. I want to be around them. I want to be near them. You know, and they have a certain presentation, and this is incredibly powerful. If you don't think it's powerful, just look back at Israel's history, for example. Who do they want for a king? Saul. Biggest man in town. Has the right appearance. He looks like a king. And then, of course, you can move a little bit further forward when you consider Saul. I mean... 
that wasn't the only time that Israel was prey to outward appearance. They lose King Saul in the process of losing him anyway. They get David. But it, that, that fixation on the external is so powerful, even Samuel, prophet Samuel, succumbs to it. Because he goes to anoint the new king in the house of Jesse. You remember this? 1 Samuel 16, right before David and Goliath's story and all of that, sometimes maybe overlooked. Samuel comes to the house of Jesse, and he says, let me see your sons, essentially. First son comes in, Eliab. And what is Samuel's response? Surely the Lord's anointed is before us. And God says, don't look at his outward appearance. Don't look at the outside, for I have rejected him. Isn't that a terrifying phrase? For man looks at the outside, but God looks at the inside. God looks at the heart. That message should have been so drilled into the head of Israel that by the time God speaks of Messiah, they should understand very clearly this is what's going on. In, in Deuteronomy 7, in that final series of sermons that Moses gives before they walk in the promised land, what does he remind Israel of? I, God did not choose you, set his affection upon you because you were mighty people. You were nothing. You were the least of peoples. And God chose you. And how many times does he do this? He doesn't use Esau, he chooses Jacob. Esau's the man's man. The guy, if you walked in the room, that's the guy you're going to go with. He's going to go out and kill something, slap you on the back and, you know, that kind of guy. Jacob was hanging out with mom. In a time and place, yeah, maybe that's not as funny to you because you're not thinking about it, right? But in that time and place, that, that's, a, that's a little borderline thing to do. Be caught in the house making stew while your brother's out killing? Hmm. And you find this principle over and over again that God uses that which has been overlooked and passed by. You come to the New Testament and Paul pictures it for us so well in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God does not choose many wise, many noble, many mighty. Instead, he chooses you. Instead, he chooses me. People that aren't that eloquent. People that aren't that impressive. And why does he do that? That he might humble the arrogant and break the boastful heart of man. God uses the things that are not to nullify, to zero out the things that are, the things that seem to be of so much importance. Israel should have this down. We should have this down. That that's who God tends to use. But we all fall prey to it. If you don't think you tend to fall prey to the outward appearance, then I would just simply point you to advertising. Advertising in general never presents the overlooked and the unimportant before you. We present the best possible foot forward. We, we've got to make it as pretty as we can, as attractive as we know how, in order to, to draw you in. That's how we tend to work. We look at the outside so very much that it's disturbing. Now we go back to our text here. Not only does he not have a stately form or majesty, 
that we should look upon him. There's nothing about him that presents in such a way that we would just be drawn in. He says, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. There's not this magnetism that pulls him in. Now, you can look at the life of Jesus, and you can see people coming in and seeing him at many times, but I would say most of that is because of the miracles he's doing. He's doing the impossible. How do you not go check that out? He's doing that which is absolutely, undeniable, impossible. Can't do that. You can't heal lepers. You can't feed a crowd. Just with a few fish and a few pieces. You can't do that. You can't walk on water. You can't do this stuff. So the crowds come in. They want to hear it. And then he, then he starts preaching. And his preaching goes with authority. And they're like, wow, this is incredible. But notice Jesus is just as good at drawing that crowd through those presentations as he is at driving them away. Jesus' ministry is this oscillating ministry. This boom and bust all the time. He chases people away as much as he might attract them. That's what's presented here in verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men. It's really interesting. The word despised in our language has this kind of real emotional negative connotation to it. The Hebrew is a little bit different. It's not quite so much emphasis on that emotive, emotional side of things. It's more, maybe a way to say it is, it's more like he's just dismissed out of hand. Because when I think something is despised, I think of my view of a cockroach. Right? If I see a cockroach, I'm not just like, mm, I don't care about that. Or if I see a cockroach, I'm like, kill it! Stomp on it! Find its friends! Murder its family! That's what I think of cockroaches. Get them out of my house. I don't ever want to see these awful things. That's not what's, pres that's not what's really in the baggage or in the, the background of the word in Hebrew. Instead, it's more like, you know, this is, this is, yeah, this is unimportant. Dismiss this. He was despised and forsaken. Forsaken, of course, the turning away from. Jesus presents himself in this, in the, among the people at various times. And what is their response to him? I take offense at him. Isn't this the carpenter's son? He doesn't have the height. You know, he doesn't have the education. He doesn't have the, the aura. I mean, maybe he's a, a short guy. You know, maybe he's, he's got a big nose. Maybe he, you know, he just doesn't look the part. I, I find it funny how many times I've heard my dad say that people meet him because they've read his writings or something like that, you know. They meet him and they go, I thought you'd be taller. <laughs> what is that? What's wrong with us? We act like that stuff is so important. Fascinating. And it's also really fascinating to see throughout world history, the movers and shakers of the world oftentimes weren't really all that big, were they? They weren't all that presentable. They were forceful, though. Forceful. They, they, they dominated with the force of their will. Alexander the Great was probably about 5'7". They say he walked with a slightly turned head, and he kind of had a strange gait, they said, in the way he walked. Uh, he, he didn't have an a external aura about him that everyone's like, oh, he's going to lead the world. No, but he had an incredibly forceful will, so strong that right after he dies, remember, four dominant generals split up his kingdom. 
They can't be brought back together in any way. They're willing to kill each other and wipe out everything they achieved as soon as he dies. That's the force of his personality, that no one was willing to trifle with him, even though by the end of his life he was all tore up with, with battle scars. Nobody wanted to push because his, his will was like that. Jesus doesn't come across like that. Instead, he won't, and a, a bruised reed, he won't break. Weird. And when he's so non-forceful in, in, in promoting himself, when he, even when he goes to John the Baptist to be baptized, he doesn't come in with the angels behind him and, oh, you know, and everything behind him. Like you might expect. I mean, if a great guy comes in town, Springfield, you remember when Obama came to town? Can any of you remember that? It's like it had to be the, the news and like he had all this entourage. And that's what our president, that's what our leaders do. They make sure you know how important they are. Jesus comes and seemingly, quite, we don't see him making any production. He just goes to John and says, baptize me. That's a quiet way to go about this. For the greatest man of all time, for God in flesh, for the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Incredible. If the arm of the Lord is going to be revealed, this is certainly not what I have come to expect just as I've marched through the book of Isaiah. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The guy who's going to come and lead everything, you don't tend to expect to have his own problems. You expect him to have everything together. You know the motivational speaker like a Tim Robbins or something like that? They have a nice suit, have a nice presentation. They seem to have the answers. They don't have a whole lot of problems in their life. Where Jesus would be, as it presents here, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he seems to have a heaviness upon him. So much so that it says here, further, and like one from whom men hide their face. Who do you avoid? Who do you typically, I mean, be real. You don't have to tell the people around you. But think about it. Who are those people in your life that you've been around that you just, yeah, I'm not going to make eye contact. You ever do that with the homeless? I mean, Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. Uh, he, he doesn't present in such a way that you think, well, this is the guy I need to pay attention to. We all do this. This is in, in the DNA of what it is to be human. Somebody comes in that's beautiful, and wow, do we treat them better. Um, I tend to think that the greatest partiality, the greatest bias that we tend to show in society is not with skin color. It's with beauty. If somebody comes in and they're pretty, people, man, it's amazing how much they'll change and how they treat them. Uh, I feel that a little bit now. I'm getting a little uglier as I age. <laughs> I've seen people treat me a little different. And I haven't changed. I've gotten nicer. Yeah. Take that any way you want. I don't care. But that's how we do things. If something's beautiful, we treat it different. They, Jesus instead presents himself in such a way as one from whom men hide their face. 
and then cycling right back in a poetic form that's intended, he says he was again returning to despised. In the beginning of verse 3, it says he was despised and forsaken. Now it says he was despised and we did not esteem him. Well, um, one of the more bizarre things I've seen just in my 44 years of life is to watch the rising esteem of household pets. Have you noticed this? I think we've watched way too much Disney. We personify these creatures. People talk about having fur babies. Stop it. It's not a baby. It's not created in the image of God. It's a dog that you put a sweater on. It's weird. If you think about it historically, if you think about it from people from other countries, think about it. It's weird. We have risen the, in, our, in our estimation the value of pets and they've gotten so high, it's weird, man. I start to understand more and more how other cultures worship animals, honestly. It's, it's strange. We're watching the devaluing of human rights and the rise of animal rights. Weird. I read recently about a guy who got um, some serious prison time for his abusive treatment of a dog. I think he should get in trouble for that. But flip that over. How much prison time does the average rapist spend in jail? Three and a half years. Atrocious. Injustice on the highest level. That is a human being creating the image of God who's going to have to live with that awful baggage the rest of their life. Have to live with that nightmare in their head the rest of their life. That's a dog. That's a dumb dog. Get it back where it belongs. It is not one for whom Christ died. We esteem many things very, very wrongly. We exalt them where they don't belong. Like the esteem I put on my own value, my own way of thinking, that I'm right all the time. We are so wrong in the way we esteem and value things that when the Son of God comes into the world, instead of embracing the light, we say, kill it. Kill it. Turn the lights back off. This is, this is too much. Kill it. He was despised. We hid our face from him. He seemed to be acquainted and surrounded with sorrows and, and grief. We forsook him and we did not esteem him rightly. Now here is where I'd love to have your full attention. I know how it is listening to a sermon. You come and go. You, you ebb and flow. I get it. I'm not that good. I understand. But at this point, hear me. Why is it that you should come to this Christ? Why should you even, now this is salvific. This is in relation to coming to Christ for salvation, the removal of your sin, to have a righteousness before the Almighty God. But it's also a come to Jesus moment again for you, anyone sitting here. Why should you come to Christ today all over again? Because he is so insanely and impossibly good. 
Do you realize, do you think about this much, about the nature of Christ? About how he didn't have to come like this. He chose to come in such a manner so as to hide the treatment that he rightly deserves and would come in such a lowly state that is illustrated throughout his entire life. He knew exactly that he would be despised and forsaken. Who likes that? Do you choose that? If you could choose how you look, how people think of you, if you could choose all these issues of your life, is this the life you would choose, what you now have? Do you like being mistreated, thought of as an idiot for the things you believe in the Bible? Do you, do you like being thought of in these ways? Wouldn't you like the whole world to think you're incredible? You know how easy that is for Jesus? Just... Instead of the Mount Transfiguration being relegated to three of his followers, he could have done that for the whole universe and stunned everyone. In his resurrection, notice he doesn't appear to Pilate and say, told you so. He doesn't appear before goofy Herod Agrippa and be like, you want to see a magic trick, huh, kid? He doesn't show up and rub it in their face. He doesn't go to Caesar and go, you're a chump. Like I would have. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, when Jesus rises from the dead, who does he show himself to? His people. Incredible. The nature of God is so incredible to consider. Paul elaborates on this principle. You get to Philippians chapter 2. And you look at Jesus. You see, though he could, you might say, want to exalt himself to be presented as God among the people of the world. No, instead he comes humbly. And with such humility, with such modesty, that he knew would be overlooked. Why would he do that? To redeem you. What? That doesn't make, I don't, I'm not worth that. And I'm not. It's the grace of God extended to us, presenting his Messiah in this way that we might be in awe as we consider his nature and who he is. The greatest being that, can, that defies even the greatest imagination would yet come in ways that are so humble and so despised that he might achieve our redemption. And the magnification of his father. This is a God to stand in awe of. Not just because of his incredible power. Not because of the, the omnipresence and omnipotence and those things that we know. But also, one of the more stunning things is to know that truth about him, that transcendence. And then to come to grips with the reality of what he denied himself in his coming, in his incarnation, is coming to us. He chose this that he might please the Father and redeem your soul. Come to Christ because he is good. Impossibly and incredibly good. And you don't get bored of learning about him. I mean, I'm in awe all over again. I was crying yesterday thinking about this. And I'm a 
guy who thinks you shouldn't cry, you know, that's kind of in my head and all that stuff. But it's hard not to when you really start to, to wrestle with the goodness of the Savior who saved you from your sin that you might then go and declare that truth. Just, how do you not speak of this? How do you not speak of such a Savior who would, who's going to believe this? Well, nobody. Except those that God would draw as we preach the message, as we declare it, and then God draws mysteriously by his own will those who will believe. Proclaim the goodness of the Savior that you love. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your kindness to us this morning, your grace to even let us stand today, to wake up this morning. Most of us wake up with most parts of our body working. We wake up with so many things to be thankful for, and yet, Lord, we, we whine about what we don't have, and we fail to consider the wonders of who you are and how every trial, every issue, every problem has the ability to draw us back to you and wonder all over again at your goodness. Lord, may we come to you today humbly. May we come to you thankful. May we come to you in awe. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.